0: Romans chapter 8 is a, really a great chapter. I was talking to Tim this morning about all the superlatives that get kind of added on to this chapter, and, and and rightly so, because it's the culmination of seven chapters of Paul's writing on rich theology and doctrine, and it reads, to me at least, like this huge exclamation point. And it starts with this amazing idea that for those of us who are found in Christ, there is no condemnation. And it ends with the reality that for the for us Christians, there there is no separation. And 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 all through there. Then sandwiched between those two amazing realities is this treasure trove of theological concepts that, that we see in Christ alone. We have hope, and we have strength, and we have justification. We have the ability to face temptation. Uh, we see that, that God is sufficient. We see that he is magnificent. We see all these things. And in and, and chapter 8, where we are today, we're going to see the role of the Spirit of God take center stage in our life. So Romans chapter 8, let's read. Um, we're going to read verses 12 through 17. And then pray and ask God to help us with this this morning. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this this morning. God, I thank you for what you've allowed us to sing about you already, God, and I love that refrain and that last song, God, we're breathing uh, in your grace. And God, we know and we believe that we're only here by your grace in, in our lives and your mercy and your love towards us. And so, God, I have to start just by saying thank you for that. And God, I, I do, I want to breathe out praise about you this morning. And um, God, I need, I need your help for that. And so, God, I pray that you would um, just cover me now. God, I pray that I would be clothed in humility Holy Spirit, I pray that you would control me. I pray that you would gift me with the gift of preaching now. God, I pray that you would calm the things in my heart that would be distracting or detracting from you. And so, God, I just, um, I offer this as a sacrifice to you. God, I pray that you would illuminate the scriptures. And so, God, today that you'd bring conviction where necessary. God, that you'd bring encouragement where needed. Um, God, that you would bring instruction. And God, that you would... um, stir our affection for you, God, that we would love you deeper and know you more fully because we spent time together in your word. It's in your name we pray, amen. Today we're introduced to a new theme um, that is our, our sonship, so that Christians are actually children of God. And nowhere else in the book of Romans up till now uh, have we been called the sons or the children of God. But, but now those titles, they come in full force and they bring with them uh, really th- the, this freedom and this hope and this joy and this love from God. And what Paul is doing in this section of scripture that we're going to be spending in the next few moments in today, he's, he's telling us Christians about ourselves He's telling those who follow Jesus who we are and who God is in relation to us. He's painting this picture. And he's also telling us what it implies for our experience. And in verse 15, we start with this phrase, the spirit of adoption. And this is a spirit that's given to us to confirm a legal transaction that's been carried out by the father, namely our adoption. And, and this would have been very familiar in the Roman world in the first century A.D. There oftentimes fathers would deliberately choose a son, and that son um, would be in no way inferior to a son who was born naturally or biologically, because this son would, would perpetuate the name of his father, and he would inherit his estate. And and oftentimes he would enjoy the affection of the father more fully uh, and he would reproduce the father's character in a more robust way. And so when the Holy Spirit is called in verse 15 the spirit of adoption, the meaning is the spirit confirms and makes real to us in our hearts this great legal transaction of adoption. So if you've come to Jesus in repentance and faith, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's your Lord, he's your savior, He is your treasure, then you are adopted. John 1.12 tells us that, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We see that the Spirit of God moves us in two directions. First, he brings God's fatherly love to us, and then the other, he stirs our childlike affections for him. The the love of God, or God's love for his children, is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, And, and the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption making real to us and applying to our hearts the love of our Father. It's this experience of a divine love. And then the second direction is that the Spirit works to lead us in awakening our own childlike affection towards our Father. And this is what Paul's talking about in verse 15 right in the middle of our section here this morning. The Spirit brings about a response in our hearts to the love of God that cries out, Abba. And that's a word that's translated um, most times as Papa or Daddy. And we cry out, Abba, Father. And the witness of the Holy Spirit that you are a child of God, it's not a testimony to a a neutral heart with with no affection for God's fatherly love so that we might arrive at some logical conclusion that we're a a child of God. And somehow uh, that allows us to muster up an appropriate and an affectionate response response for him the witness of the holy spirit that you are a child of god is the creation in you of the affection of god the the testimony of the holy spirit is the cry the cry out so um the best part of my day, one of the best parts of my day, is when I come home, uh, I open the door, and in our house, there's a long hallway, kind of like this hallway here, that leads back to the living room. And when, when I come through the front door, uh, we, we have three children four, two, and nine months. And my two year old daughter, Vera, uh, she'll be in the living room, and she'll hear the keys rattle, and she'll hear the door open, and she comes running down the hall, and she screams, and she runs and she gives me this big hug. And I, and I love it. It's one of the things I look forward to the most. And so when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about her cry out of that. And so I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll videotape that. And then I'll bring that as an illustration on, on Sunday and I'll show them. And so on Wednesday, I went and opened the door and I had my phone ready. And I was getting ready to capture the video. And sure enough, I come through the door. I hear her yell, Daddy! And she comes tearing down the hall. And she comes and gives me big hugs. But she's not wearing any pants. And so I thought, well, okay, all right, I can't, I can't use that. And I didn't tell anybody that I was videotaping this because I wanted the most, like, kind of natural response. So the next day, Thursday, same thing, open the door. Sure enough, I love it. She comes screaming down, Daddy! This time, completely naked. And so I thought, well, okay, God just doesn't want me to, like, show that, that video and, you know, I don't know what's happening at that house when I'm not there, but... But, you know, you know there's great, when you've got three kids, there is no guarantee that they're all going to be clothed at the same time, so I understand that. But that's a perfect picture of what Paul is describing here. And he uses the word cry, and he uses that word Abba or Daddy uh, specifically because both of them point to a deep, affectionate, personal, authentic experience of God's fatherly love. So my my four-year-old, she's getting a little cool in her four-year-old days. And like, you know, because I walk in, she'll be in the kitchen or in the living room kind of watching TV. And she's sitting there, you know, watching Dora whatever. And I was like, Evie, I'm home. Yeah. And and, and I was thinking, you know, why, why is she captivated like that? Like, what could Dora do for her that I couldn't do besides teach her Spanish? But isn't that a constant narrative in our life, right? That we are always captivated by the lesser things. And so what Paul is talking about is that there is this affection that is in us, a testimony um, that affirms our adoption by our Father. It's interesting, Paul doesn't say that that it's doctrinal affirmation that's important. The devil knows the doctrine of adoption doctrinal affirmations are important, but they don't make children. What he said was that the testimony of the Spirit that we are God's children is that from our hearts there rises an irrepressible cry, a cry, not a mere statement, not a mere mental ascension to, but a cry that says, Abba, Daddy, Father. There's an article in Christianity Today. It was written uh, 2010, and it was about this couple who went to the former Soviet Union to adopt these two young boys, and um, in the article, he's writing about their experience of walking through the orphanage, and he said one of the, the most eerie things about walking through this orphanage is that it's filled with children, you know, one and two-year-old children, um, but there was no sound. It was silent. And they're walking through the halls and they're walking towards the room to the, to the two boys that they would adopt. And he, and he says, these children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, or for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped And in this article he talks about his experience, he said, we would read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same, but there were no cries, there were no squeals, there were no groans. And every day we left at the appointed time in the same way that we had entered in silence. And according to the adoption laws there at the time, they would have to leave to come back to the United States before the adoption would be finalized. And so on their last day, they're getting ready to leave And he says, after hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim, one of the boys, fell back in his crib, and he let out a guttural yell. And the author says it seemed that he knew that maybe for the first time, he would be heard. John Piper writes about this section. He says, we don't infer logically the fatherhood of God from the testimony of the Spirit. We enjoy emotionally the fatherhood of God by the testimony of the Spirit. The testimony of the Spirit is not a premise from which we deduce that we are children of God. It is a power by which we delight in being the children of God. I have a friend, and he uses this phrase all the time, and he he kind of goes in and he says, God is good to his kids. And I remember when I first spent time with him and, it, and I would hear him say, I was like, that just kind of sounds like one of these kind of trite, almost kind of pithy, kind of like Christian little phrases that we put out there. You know, like a lot of times if we feel like if we're going to say something that's theologically robust or true, it's got to be like really complicated and have a bunch of words. We don't really understand, but we read it in a C.S. Lewis book. And so we got to repeat it. Right? And then and the more that I spent time with this guy and the more that we kind of went through life together. And the more I heard him say, God is good to his kids, the more I've come to realize how rich and deep and God-honoring and God-loving and theologically sound this statement is that God is good to his kids. When we sit down at a meal and looks at the table and says, God is so good to his kids. Going, going on hikes, walking outside, seeing the sunset or seeing the sunrise, God is good to his kids. When God provides out of nowhere with something that's just like you never even saw that come in, that was totally left field, God is good to his kids. In the midst of tragedy, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of walking along someone, their story and their thing is falling apart, you say, God is good to his kids. That's what Paul is talking about here. The Spirit affirms that we cry out, Abba, God, Father, you are so good to us. From our text today, I see that this spirit is going to lead us in in three significant ways. It leads us in freedom. Freedom is a major um, deal with with Paul. It's a a major concept reality in the scripture. Um, And I see that the spirit of God, the spirit of adoption, it leads us in freedom in three significant ways. The first um, way that I see freedom or the, the spirit leading us in freedom is freedom from ourselves. Or freedom from the flesh is what the scripture says. Look at verse 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The other day in the mail, I got a, a credit card offer and it said, how would you like some freedom from that holiday debt? And it was uh, an offer to transfer my balance to their card, <laughs> right? So not real freedom, just kind of delaying the inevitable. But, but we get that, right? We understand that. We understand the pressure of debt, Paul here ascribes it to somewhere we might not necessarily think of as one of our debtors ourselves, to, to use the language the scripture uses or to be more precise, our flesh. And, and the flesh is this, the flesh is this built-in law of failure that we have. It's, it is a compulsive inner force inherited from Adam's fall, and it expresses itself in, in general and in specific rebellion against God and his righteousness, In verse 12, in Romans chapter 8, it matters to us because we have a devotion to our self-esteem and a devotion to our self-promotion, don't we? this month, uh, Facebook, if you're a social media, social networking using type person, this, this month you know that Facebook celebrated their 10 year anniversary and to celebrate, um, they had this little function on their website that allowed people to create a 62 second, uh, almost mini documentary of their life. So it compiled all the things that they had ever used on Facebook, all the um, statuses and, and photos and kind of brought them all together and it made this little documentary with piano music look great and all kinds of stuff. And if you're on Facebook, then you saw uh, that people everywhere were, were doing this, and your newsfeed was filling up with all these little mini movies of people's lives. and they got to see who liked their posts and the pictures and kind of why did so many people take that uh, option? And why did so many people do that? Because we love ourselves. And we love that people love us. We couldn't agree more, right? So Facebook is very smart. They have this, they, this icon. You all, if you're on Facebook, you've seen the icon, right? So this is a very powerful icon. This is the like symbol. If I write something and you like it, you click on that. If I sh- put up a picture you like, you put on that, right? And some of you, you live for the like. In fact, some of you, if you don't get the uh, appropriate number of likes that you think that you should have, you get angry at your friends. You're like, what's wrong with you? That was really good. That, you should have liked that. Why didn't you like that, right? We have a, we have a, a duty. We're, we're slaves to our own self-ethic too, right? So you've heard, or maybe you've even said, I owe it to myself. I owe it to myself. I owe it to myself to pursue my dream, no matter what the cost, no matter who I have to run over, if it, if it affects my spouse or my family or my friends, anybody. I owe it to myself. And we live lives, and you don't even have to be a Christian. You don't have to believe the Bible. You don't have to follow Jesus or anything to, 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 to be like this. You live your life like this is the only chance at happiness. Tim last week, he said something in his message that was, I was, was really good. He, he said, we spend our lives on what we love. And, and I made a little note when I was looking at this. I was like, how much do I spend on myself? Not just money, although that's part of it, but how much time, how much energy, How much capital do I spend on myself? The gospel, everything that we've seen in this chapter so far, everything that we've seen in the book of Romans, it, it wakes us up to realize that our me first mentality actually makes us very sad. And we see that everywhere. You don't have to go very far to prove that. And it makes us very sad because there's nothing divine about it. There's nothing special about it. And the gospel wakes us up to renounce that way of living. I had the opportunity a couple weekends ago to teach at the middle school and high school student winter camp. Justin and Matt are super gracious to allow me the, the privilege and the opportunity to go and, and, and do that. And, um, you know, I pray every year that God would just do incredible kids, that God, kids would take their next step with Jesus, that kids that don't know Jesus would know him. And, and God's always been really faithful to us and super gracious, merciful to us to just do really cool stuff in the lives of these kids. But I had a personal prayer, kind of separate just from what God would do at camp, but I had a personal prayer for my own heart that God would do something radical in me. And my prayer was this, is that God would do something that can't be explained by my own ability. In other words, like kids wouldn't come back and be like, "Oh yeah, of course I bought it because he's a good communicator. He said some funny stuff. He's really passionate, kind of thing." And 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 I just prayed, God, would you just like just blow that up? Because I am so sick of what I can do on my own. I've had it. I've tasted it, and I'm over it. And so God, would you just do something that can only be explained by you? And that can't be chalked up to something that I did. And and I don't think that's a one-time prayer either. I don't for a one-time event. I think that's an everyday, every moment prayer. There's a book I love um, written by a man named A.W. Tozer. It's an older book, but it's one of these books that you could just take out and you could just read it all the time and never really get old. It's called The Pursuit of God, and the subtitle on it is The Human Thirst for the Divine. And after the first chapter, there's a prayer in it. And a lot of times when I'm reading through this book, I have a hard time getting past this prayer because I just camped there for a while. But, the pr- but this prayer that he writes after the first chapter goes like this, O oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing, and I thirst to be made more thirsty still. The good news of Jesus wakes us up to where we say, I don't want to listen to my old demanding thoughts of my flesh. I want the Spirit to lead me in this new direction, to lead me in freedom. And when God puts his Spirit in us, it wages war and begins to bring life to us and death to our flesh, death, death to ourselves. And, and this death to self is not easy, but it is happy. Verse 13 talks about that. It says a war. Well, how does this happen? A, a few weeks ago, Tim had a phrase that's been on replay in my heart and my mind. He said, stop fighting sin and start presenting yourself to God. You See, the war on sin is not won by willpower, but by belief. It, it certainly is good to stop destructive behaviors and to close opportunities and open windows to, to sin. But we need to go further than that, or better said, we need to be led further than that. Because when we sin, and all sin, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. Romans chapter one taught us that. We rebel against God and his way of living because we believe that God will not bring us joy, but this other set of behaviors, this other trajectory away from God will bring us joy. Our primary problem is is not behavior, but false thoughts of God in our hearts. There's another Tozer quote for you. He says, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. And we put to death our flesh when the Spirit of God leads us in our enjoyment, in our celebration, and in our worship of God. Our, our sin is not going to go away except by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, that renews our hearts towards God. It's, this, it's the same power of creation. It's the same power of resurrection. And the scripture tells us that that power is in us. It's interesting to me here that, that Paul doesn't just kind of have like an, a little side, almost like a, like a technical manual pullout in the scripture that give us a step-by-step process in verse 13. And I think he doesn't do that because relationships don't work like that. Relationships are living and, and, and changing and unique, and, and they are organic. They're particular. They're special. Okay, so how does, how does this work? All right, well, let's take a kind of a particular scenario. So men, let's say you get in a disagreement with your spouse. Probably doesn't happen to the men in this church, so I'll use a hypothetical situation from my own life. Um, we have in, in our home, and it's not so much we as me, um, uh, and I wouldn't call it a rule or a law, it's more like a mandatory suggestion that I, that I have with, with my wife, um, there's a little light that comes on in in the van that she drives by the fuel gauge. And when that light comes on, you're on low fuel. And so I just said, hey, whenever that light comes on, before you come home, can you just kind of go put some gas in? And that way, we're not driving around with the light on low fuel and stuff, You know, all that kind of thing. So um, the other day, I had to go somewhere. The other night, I had to go somewhere. And I jumped in her van and turned on the the van. And of course, the light is there, mocking me, (laughs) illuminating the whole vehicle. And so I react to that, right? And, and, um, and so I go in and I say, you know, the, the light is on. What's up? And she said, well, I thought it would get brighter. And then my light starts to get brighter, right? I was telling this story the first hour, and afterwards some guy's like, you know what I do? I just always fill up my wife's car with gas. And I was like, well, good for you. <laughs> like... Come on over to my house, 834, South of Way. <laughs> it wouldn't bother me if he wasn't right, but it kills the illustration. So, okay, so so what sh- what should I have done? Like, what do I do in this scenario? So first, I ask myself, why in my heart am I not believing that God is patient in understanding with me? My, my good friend Ricardo is the Tempe pastor, and uh, Rick and I, a lot of times we'll sit down and we'll just kind of start to confess in one another, kind of talk about this struggle and talk this. He has a phrase that he uses, and I've adopted it. I love it. And he says, You know, when I get in those situations, I, I pray this prayer and I say, God, something right now is fighting for my heart. And I think the language is so appropriate. And that's exactly what's happening. There's something that is fighting for control of your heart. And so the first step that I have to do is I have to ask myself, God, why in my heart am I not believing that you are patient and understanding? And then I remind myself just how patient and understanding God is with me. And I rehearse my own life and I look at all the, the, the scenes in my life of where God could have and should have just blown me up. When I think about that, it's very difficult for me to raise my voice when I feel like I've been offended or disrespected. I mean, I I can look at the first 11 verses here in Romans 8, and and I see that he doesn't condemn. I see that he is a spirit of life, that he's redefined my future. I see that he humbled himself to die on a cross for my sins so I didn't have to die. I I see that he gives me his spirit. I see that he'll never leave me. And, and, And that's only 11 verses out of the whole Bible. And then finally, in that moment, I lean on the Holy Spirit for his help. And at the moment of anger and and frustration, I pray for help. And I say, God, would you just help me to reconnect to who you really are? Because my flesh is ready to lash out at my wife. But you love me. How could I not love her? You have not condemned me. How can I speak words of condemnation over her? God, by your spirit, would you help me to love her and forgive her the same way that you love me and forgive me? And, and then just like God does to us, I speak kindness and life and freedom over my wife. You see, it's not about my wife and the fuel gauge. It's about me and God. It's always about God. Everything in your life is always about God. It will always come back to that. And the key to this warfare, this warfare of a fighting flesh is worship. It is by the Spirit of God crying out to God who He is and what He's done and what He promises to finish in my life. So I see that the Spirit leads me in freedom from myself and it empowers me to fight sin. The Spirit leads me in freedom from myself and it empowers me to fight sin. The second freedom that the Spirit leads us in is this freedom from fear. In, um, verse 15 there's a there's a phrase that i i just really loved when i was studying this and it it says it's the first phrase there for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear at the beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry, he invited a group of people that are called disciples, which is another name for follower or learner, to, to follow him. And this was not uncommon for a, a rabbi or a teacher uh, to have a group that would follow him. And as they went through life, he would teach them. He'd point out things and he'd say, this is how you respond to this. This is how you honor me in this. Or let me teach you about something bigger than yourself in this particular scenario. And he would kind of walk through. And in Matthew chapter 10... Um, Matthew is relaying a lot of the instruction that Jesus gives to these followers. And and there's a a moment there where he's talking through. He said, okay, here's where you're going to go. Here's where you're going to take my message. Uh, Here are some of the things that you're going to do in my name. Here's how much money to take. Here are the clothes to wear. Here's how long to stay there. And then he kind of drops a bomb on him later on in that section. He says, and by the way, you're going to be arrested. But don't worry, because when you're arrested, it'll give you words to say. And then you're going to be whipped, you're going to be flogged, right? And he, and he essentially says, look, I know right now it looks great following me because it's pretty popular. Everybody likes me. Some good stuff's happening. But it's going, the tables are going to turn, and they're going to hate me, and they're going to hate you. And then he goes on and on. And then in verse 28 in chapter 10, he, he gives him this, and he gives it to us as well. He says, and do not fear. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him or revere him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, verse 31. Therefore you are of more value than sparrows. And Jesus says to his followers, look in the midst of all this stuff. Do not be afraid. Here's where Jesus is always taking his followers. He takes them to a place where their faith in God, their faith in their heavenly father is so big and so strong, and they feel so secure in the love of their father that even when it looks like that God is is nowhere, even when it looks like everything is crumbling around, we hear him whisper, fear not. The message of Jesus wasn't, don't be afraid because I won't let bad things happen to you. The message of Jesus was, don't be afraid when bad things happen to you because that's a confidence in our father that's a confidence in god a confidence that's so big and that's so secure of of god's love and protection that it actually overwhelms and overshadows fear and god wants to take us to a place where every day when we wake up we knew we we know that we are absolutely sure that god is with us and for us and we can ask the question what would i do today if i knew that god was for me that God was with me, that that, that the God who can protect my soul, even though this body may be and will be harmed, what would I do if I was absolutely sure that he was with me and for me? How would I work? How would I interact with my spouse? How would I interact with my children, with my neighbors, with my family, with my friends, if I knew, if I was absolutely sure that my Heavenly Father was with me and for me? And Jesus takes his followers there over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. There's a particular scene where Jesus and his followers are out on the Sea of Galilee and the storm kicks up. That was pretty common out there. And Jesus is asleep in the boat, actually, and, the, and his followers are being tossed around and the water is filling the boat. And, um, and they, they freak out and they say, they say, Jesus, wake up. Don't you even care that we're perishing? Don't you even care that we're about to die? And Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm and in Mark 4:40, he says to his disciples, "Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith?" Jesus says, "I know there was a storm. I know the boat was filling up with water. I know that some of you don't know how to swim. But here's my question: Why are you afraid?" I think it's kind of a strange question. That's what Jesus takes them to over and over and over again. Do you still not believe? Why are you afraid? That's what he says. When, when he says he wants them to be at a place where they fear not, He's, he says, I want you to be at a place where you can be in terrifying circumstances and still not fear. Why? Because my body can be harmed, but my heavenly Father who protects my soul is with me. Why does Jesus make such a big deal of this? I mean, of all the things, why does he make such a big deal of this? Because overwhelming faith, because a confidence in your father, honors God. So my my little girls, four and two, they watch a lot of princess movies, like most girls their age and stuff, and and they really love um, the part of the story where the prince will save the princess, right? And so they're really kind of enamored with that idea, and so then they, they come up to me a lot and they say, Daddy, will you protect us? You know, sometimes it freaks me out because I'm just like, why? Who's in the house? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Um, Daddy, will you protect us? It honors me when they come to me and they trust my ability to protect them. It honors our father when we trust in his ability to protect our soul, even though our body may be harmed. Our soul is protected and kept by him. We honor God with our big over-the-top faith. It's that same Spirit that lets us cry out to Him, Abba, Daddy, Father. It leads us to a place where our faith in our Father overwhelms our fears. So the Spirit leads us in freedom over our flesh. The Spirit leads us in freedom from our fears and envelops us in the love of God. And then lastly, the last freedom that we experience in the Spirit is the freedom to follow To verse 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him and in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's a progression in these verses. Paul's talking about the Spirit of God that takes us somewhere spiritually, that takes us um, and leads us further into the love of the Father. It leads us into a place where we can say, you know what, I'm not in charge here. And yeah, there is a storm, but God is good. Even in, even in my suffering, my Father has a future glory for me. And Tim's going to talk a, uh, unpack more of that next week. Even in the midst of my enemies are those who hate me. My Father is good, so I can love them. That's what overwhelming faith does. That's what a confidence in, in, in God does. It allows us to love those who hate us or persecute us. F- First John 4.18 says, there, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. When, when, when you get rid of, of fear, then all of a sudden your capacity to love grows. When you get rid of fear, your, your capacity to follow grows. As well. The, the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote this letter to the church, he probably understood this concept better than, than anyone. Um, he wrote this letter about 20 years after Jesus had gone to, to the followers of Jesus in, in, in Rome. And you would not want to be a Christian in Rome. You talk about suffering and persecution, it was in full effect there. And, and Paul writes this letter, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but in verse 28, he says this And we know. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul says, I know. I know. Could you imagine living a life of that kind of confidence? Could you imagine following Jesus with that kind of confidence? He backs it up just a few verses later in verse 35. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul says, what could possibly make me doubt the love of Christ for me? I've got some more that you could add to this list. Uh, what? what Would it be my spouse's infidelity? Would it be friends that bail on me or backstab me? Would it be the word malignant on a medical test? Would it be me losing my job? Would it be me moving to a new school? My investment failing? My, my deal falling through? Not getting accepted into the school I wanted? Not getting the job that I wanted? Not getting the promotion? When my child walks away from the faith? And you go on and on and on. And Paul just says, What? What can separate you from a father who can protect your soul and who is with you and for you? God says, fear not. You say, yeah, but God, but don't you realize what's going on? Of course I do. I'm God. Fear not. And Paul is writing to take us, church, to a place where we're ready to follow, where we do follow. And we surrender. You, you see, for those of us who are children of God, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, surrender is not optional. Uh, that's what I love about that song, Your Grace Finds Me, because that's the very nature of our God, that he comes after us. You can't be a non-surrendering follower of Jesus. It just isn't an option. And, and, and if you want safe, if that's all you're concerned about is your safety and your security, then you don't want Jesus. Because the guy who penned these words that we are reading, who made it possible for us to have this, this letter, he gave his life so that we could read the very words of God. It is not safe, but it is so, so good. And Paul is talking about us being in a place where we're constantly trusting the leading of the Spirit of God. where we're, When we follow, we are expecting the power of the Holy Spirit to propel us. Where we're always telling ourselves, we're always rehearsing the declaration that God is good. We're looking to the cross that affirms that God is good. We're looking to Jesus that affirms that God is good. In the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, in the the midst of things that we don't understand or don't want in life, we're constantly rehearsing by the power of the Spirit, God is good. My Father is good. Abba, Daddy, you are good. You see, this cry of Abba, of Father, is not just a one time cry that we make at some moment of conversion. It is a moment by moment cry that we make our whole life. And it is a liberating freedom cry. But unfortunately, for so many of us, we just grow so complacent and comfortable that we don't cry out to our Father. I was, t- I was talking about verse 16 and 17 this morning with Tim over, over coffee, and he said, Who suffers? He said, Do you suffer? I, I don't suffer. I mean, suffering maybe in in North Korea. There are some Christians in North Korea or maybe in China or maybe some random missionary stories out there that, that they're suffering. Who suffers? Followers suffer. Followers suffer because followers go to the places where Jesus goes and Jesus goes to the hard places and to the hard people. At the end of this article in Christianity Today, he ends with a, with a line that I just thought was so good, it ha- really has kind of like hovered over me. Um, and he says this, he says, the universe around us is creepily silent, like an orphanage in which the children no longer believe they will be heard. If we follow, we can show the orphan universe what it means to belong to a God who welcomes the fatherless. I, I didn't share this with the other services, and I'm probably running out of time, but you don't have anywhere to be. But um, this, this week, I found out that a friend of mine, um, a girl that I went to high school with, she was in my class. We hung out not recently. Um, actually, it's probably been about 10, maybe 12 years since I've even seen her or talked to her. Mother of four, 35 years old, um, occupational therapist with the school system in Pinellas County, Florida. A few nights ago, she went to the tallest bridge in all of Pinellas County and jumped off, killed herself. Because she lived in a silent universe and thought nobody cared. Nobody will hear me anyway. I, I really was not at all planning on telling this story, but it's just been like all over me the past two days. And when I read that line, that the universe around us is silent, I think of her. And I hate that she stood at the edge, just scared out of her mind. And that there was just something going on in her heart and in her life where she felt like this is the only option. I have no other option. And church, we do not have to go very far to find people like that. And and your cry to the Father... It's not just for you. It's for the world around you. That they might hear you crying out. And that it might just rattle something. I think of this little boy in the orphanage where something finally rattled. And the the picture came together that like, this is distorted. This isn't right. But there's hope for it to be made right. And if we don't follow, and if we don't follow close, and we're not crying out, and the world won't hear and the Spirit of God leads us in freedom to follow so that we can be engaged in God's mission to the hard places and to the hard people and to those who have given up on crying out. Let's pray. God, I, I love you. and um, God, I thank you that you not only give us the opportunity to cry out, but God, you hear us every time. And God, you're not just far off and distant and out there and... and not paying attention to us, but God, you are intimately acquainted with every part of our life. And God, I thank you for your spirit that you've given us, God, a spirit that gives us freedom from ourselves, God, a spirit that gives us freedom from our fears, and God, a a spirit that gives us freedom to follow you. And God, I pray that that would be said of us, God, I pray that we would be a spirit-filled and spirit-led people who do follow you. It's in your name we pray.